we have seen, you know, some very big deals. There are still sales happening. There's price reductions happening. The market is not dead. I think I had a story that was like, it's not dead. It's just different. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. We're your hosts. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. This week, we're heading south and checking in with TRD's head of residential coverage and reporter, Catherine Kalurgis, on how Miami's luxury market has fared as rates have risen. As we know, and as we've talked about on our podcast before, Miami and South Florida generally were super hot markets in COVID. We saw prices soar. We saw more buyers than we ever have. But things, you know, with rising rates, things seem to have settled now. Those who aren't reliant on mortgages, though, are still making huge, huge purchases. So we'll get into all of that. But first, here's the top news of last week. Let's kick it off with a flat iron story because what a weird one that was. We talked a little bit about it last week. Yeah. So we mentioned that this relative unknown to the real estate world, Jacob Garlick, had put in a bid for the Flatiron building. And he won. He ousted Jeffrey Garral, this titan of New that's not what And he won. He bested Jeffrey Garral, this titan of New York real estate, who was also one of the building's owners before it went to auction. So Garlic won with a final bid of $190 million. So that happened on Wednesday. And then on Friday, Garlic was supposed to put down this $19 million deposit. But he blew that deadline completely. And now it's sort of up in the air as to whether Garral will exercise his second place bid. So the future of this property, one of New York's most iconic buildings, is just unknown? For the time being, yeah. It could go back to auction. We're sort of in wait and see mode on that for now. But I'd say the bigger bit of interest is who this garlic guy is. We may drop a special episode next week about what we've unearthed. If you're game for that, leave us a comment or drop us a line at our email address, podcasts at therealdeal.com. Yeah, just in general, we've been picking up a lot more followers. Which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. And we want to hear what you want to hear about. So leave us a review or send us an email. Absolutely. We definitely want more feedback. So back to the CRE distress thread. We saw Blackstone grapple with this $271 million loan last week. Susanna, you reported on that. What went down there? Basically, we know this loan went to special servicing in January, and it covers 11 multifamily properties in Manhattan. So no office here, which is interesting. Most recently, Moody's downgraded the debt, citing a declining performance, and it attributed that to cash flow that wouldn't cover debt service. Okay, that idea of insufficient cash flow... That raises a red flag for me because haven't we seen the rental market in New York explode over the past year, year and a half? How could cash flow be a problem? Yeah, so I had that question too. Blackstone said it's dealing with floating rate debt, which we know has impaired many owners' ability to pay. It also revamped these properties kind of recently, and the spokesperson for Blackstone said that it spent more on capital expenditures than it had underwritten the loan for. But the cash flow could be attributable to rent collections. Blackstone offered one of the most robust eviction moratoriums in the country. It lasted longer than federal protections and most state protections, maybe apart from L.A., going, you know, two years in some cases without collecting a rent payment. And it said it wouldn't 
evict those renters. Um, And that could have had an impact on the revenue streams of these Manhattan buildings. Okay, I could see how that would make sense. So turning back to our bank collapse coverage, you had this great piece delving into the innards of First Republic's loan books. So can you talk about what you found there? Yeah. So after the collapse of SVB and Signature Bank, First Republic stock tanked and the bank was bleeding deposits. So I was really just starting out by making a bunch of calls about First Republic. I was I wanted to talk to anyone who had a commercial loan with the bank, experts, analysts, anyone with exposure or knowledge of their financials and also like how they did business. And I spoke to Eric Sussman. He's a professor at UCLA who we've actually had on the podcast before. And he said something that really struck me, that First Republic was having to pay out more in interest rates on its deposits than it was reeling in from its mortgages. And at about the same time that I was making these calls, Fitch Ratings downgraded the bank for a second time and said it was operating at a net loss because of a higher cost of funds, i.e. interest expenses. Mm, And it's not like you can increase rates on mortgages, right? They're basically locked in. Right. So 97% of First Republic's mortgages were issued after 2008. And mortgage rates have been historically low since then, averaging 4.2%. And First Republic's average mortgage borrower had a credit of 780. So their average is likely to be even lower. And those are locked in, right? You can't go back to a mortgage borrower and say, hi, can we refinance at a higher rate? That's not going to happen. So, you know, you have interest coming in every month at the same rate for 30 years. Well, now the federal funds rate has skyrocketed, meaning banks have to pay out more interest on savings accounts and certificates of deposit. So the question is now, can First Republic keep up business to meet rising expenses? Okay. So how much, by how much have their expenses gone up since the Fed started raising rates? 227% year over year at the end of 2022. And for context, their income from single family mortgages went up 30% year over year. Their expenses are rising much, much, much faster than the income that they're reeling from single family mortgages. Yeah, it's been fascinating to to get a look under the hood of these banks. And even there, there seem to be mysteries. So like with Signature, we know that its downfall wasn't caused by CRE loans. But as we're digging into its books a little bit more, it seems like some of the assets, those loans back, so rent stabilized properties, which make up like half of its loan book, there may be some problems with those properties, the valuations. So there may be problems with those loans once they go to market. Got it. And we found out that Newmark is going to be marketing signatures loans for sale, right? Is there any news there? Yeah. So we're reporting that out a bit, looking to unwrap who is likely to pick up these loans in a sale and what it will mean for those rent-stabilized properties specifically, because many of them are underwater. So nothing new there, but stay tuned for that. So I wanted to focus a bit on what's happening in some of our secondary markets, Texas and Chicago. Cool. Let's start with Chicago first. The race for Chicago's new mayor is heating up and the candidates squared off last night in what was the final televised debate ahead of the election. Yeah. So tomorrow the city will elect a new mayor. The race is between progressive Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis, a Democrat, viewed as the more conservative pick. 
The GRP said it's not backing Ballas, but he did pick up some industry dollars at the 11th hour. Oh, okay. So what is real estate like about him? The industry thinks he'll make it easier to develop compared to Johnson, who wants to bump real estate transfer taxes and fight for more regulations that would make it trickier and more difficult to build in the city. Mm, Okay. And who's favored between the two? So, you know, a week before the election, we saw a dead heat. Both candidates had clocked in at 44 percent and 12 percent of constituents remained undecided. That's according to ABC Chicago. But a lot of people vote early and there's always some last minute jockeying, as we know. We'll look out for that on Tuesday. So swinging down to the Lone Star State, our newly situated Texas reporter, Joe Lovinger, dug into this boom in flex office space that's really taking over the Texas suburbs. Is this a WeWork situation? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, akin to that. So it's funny. Workers call them WeWorks, almost like you would call a tissue a Kleenex. But there are various companies in on this. Mostly the spaces are in buildings where the landlords needed to find a sublet given the endurance of remote work. And why the suburbs? Why not inner city? That's a product of the Texas geography. Joe had this great lead describing it, actually. He said, Texas cities don't grow up, they grow out. So there's this sprawl proliferating as more people move to Texas that's beginning to connect these disparate cities. I guess it kind of reminds me of like how LA, and I guess you could speak more to this, Bella, is just this like expanse of roads. Right. It's it's not like New York where everything is kind of centrally located. It's just, you know, you build out and out and out. On that note, we saw Lennar, which is one of the most prolific builders in the Austin metro area, decide to build 1,600 homes in San Marcos. That's a college town nestled between Austin and San Antonio. In general, Texas really seems to be a boom state for development. Toll Brothers has thousands of apartments in the pipeline. Houston's Nick Danani, a retail veteran who transitioned into multifamily a few years back, also has 3,000 units set to come online. And Endeavor, which is redeveloping the former Austin American Statesman headquarters that's on the outskirts of downtown Austin, Endeavor just announced plans to build out two more multifamily developments on the outskirts. They'll produce over 900 units. Suffice to say, things are really popping off in the Southwest. Let's hear from Catherine about what's happening in Florida. So thank you, Catherine, for coming on. First, can you give us a general big picture overview on what's happening with the luxury market in Miami? Yeah, so sales have been slowing down since the summer, I would say, um, last summer, uh, because of interest rates completely. Depend with with luxury, like that's it's just such a huge range in terms of price and like buyer that it kind of depends on what you're talking about. We have seen, you know, some very big deals. There are still sales happening. Um there's price reductions happening. The market is not dead. I think I had a story that was like, it's not dead, it's just different, which was <laughs> A quote from, I think it was Jonathan Miller. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's, there there was, there was no way it could continue at the pace it was going at. So, and any comparison to, you know, the previous year is obviously going to be kind of skewed. So yeah, it's, it's just been, it's just been slower than, than usual. Right. And we're coming off a period where we saw insane price growth and these insane sales, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And pricing, you know, like, properties that were previously priced at a certain point, like are just now in a completely different category. And, you know, that like, I think some of that is there to stay, obviously, like not to like the extreme that a lot of sellers wanted to, but 
um, definitely like adjusted pricing across the board. Okay, so there are really two segments of the luxury market that maybe five million dollar plus point where buyers are still dependent on what interest rates are doing. They might, you know, they're looking to get a mortgage when they buy a home. And then we have the $100 million plus sales. Those buyers aren't really mortgage dependent. Right. Yeah. They're not concerned, like, is Bank of America going to give me my loan for this deal? Um, and those deals, like, those deals will happen in any downturn. You know, if a buyer, like, you know, like Ken Griffin, billionaire hedge fund manager, he's not, that, that kind of thing is not going to affect him. Um, we had a sale, you know, a few weeks ago that was the uh, Rush Limbaugh's widow um, sold their estate for $155 million to the cosmetics billionaire, um, William Lauder. So like those deals are going to happen kind of regardless of what's going on. And that's because there's still this attraction to Miami, right? People still want to be there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's still people moving here. I'm still hearing from agents who are working with wealthy buyers who are relocating. It's kind of interesting because like depending on what price point, like within luxury that you're talking about, some of their decisions are driven by, you know, whether their, their kids are getting into certain private schools, where they, you know, where they can be and that kind of thing. Can you elaborate on how pricing has shifted and adjusted since interest rates have risen? Yeah, I think so. There's, you know, there's less, there's fewer price cuts, I think, than in that I would imagine there would be, but properties are selling for below ask a lot. Um, and in very few cases, we're seeing some some homes sell or condos sell at a loss from their um, previous sale price, which was probably during the peak, you know, of COVID when when pricing was super high. One deal that kind of comes to mind is there was a penthouse at Arte in Surfside, which is a boutique condo building um, north of Miami Beach on the ocean. And a, an undisclosed crypto buyer paid, I think it was $22.5 million for it, which was a record at the time, price per square foot basis. It was very high. And we never figured out who the buyer was, but they ended up selling it at a loss this December for like 18 million. And I think that's kind of interesting because it shows that like that pricing at the very top, you know, obviously didn't hold. And maybe that buyer just had to liquidate. I don't know. I mean, that would be pure speculation, but but I think it kind of like shows a lot of different things about about the market. So we had a few stories over the last couple of years about the crypto pool and how the riches that were made off the crypto boom were funneled into real estate in South Florida. Can you talk about whether that started to shift at all? Yeah. So, you know, there were a lot, and I think we, I saw it more in pre-construction. So any like new developments, there was kind of a big boom. Um, certain projects attracted a lot of crypto buyers. And when FTX collapsed, um, because a lot of the developers were, you know, using FTX to, to do the, the exchanges, they kind of like, you know, they kind of got quiet. They weren't like talking about it. Um, they didn't want to talk about crypto at all. Um, you know, I spoke to some brokers who like specialize in crypto and they were not really seeing a lot of activity at the time. Um, it's kind of like funny because I did recently get a pitch that there are, there's a project in Wynwood that has still seeing crypto buyers. They're just using a different exchange. So I think there's always going to be some of that here, especially because there's, you know, we still have a lot of tech people and crypto people and it's like Miami attracts that kind of thing. Um, but it's not what it, it's like anything else. It's not what it was. And what about international buyers? We've also had some stories about how with travel restrictions, a lot of international buyers were kind of sitting on the sidelines and not buying into real estate. Has that shifted? 
Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, like they weren't totally gone. They were never totally gone. Um, but yeah, they have, they have come back to the market. It depends too on like what's going on in some of these countries, like politically speaking, that will kind of propel, you know, a wave of investors looking to like, you know, have their money in U.S. real estate. Um, they generally like pre-construction because they can kind of space out their deposits. Um, it's not something that they have to do all at once. So yeah, that's definitely come back. It's, I don't think it's as, you, I don't think you could say it's as dominant as the domestic buyer, um, here right now, but, but they're, they're back for sure. So obviously agents were extremely busy in 2021, early 2022. You speak to brokers all the time. What's the sentiment among them right now? It's easier to reach them, <laughs> which I think says a lot. You know, there were some agents who I who who I just couldn't get a hold of because they were so busy. And it would be like, well, maybe in a week or maybe, you know, I have like a 15 minute window like on this Friday or can you talk on Saturday? You know what I mean? And so now they're like, I think a little bit more accessible, but it's gotten harder. Like this is the kind of market that like tests the top agents the most because they have to like make deals happen in a more challenging like situation. Right. Deals aren't just showing up on their doorstep. Yeah. Yeah. On the pre-construction front, are you seeing any sort of pullback in luxury development at all? I asked because I know this is something that we're seeing in LA. So that's an interesting question because the environment has gotten so challenging with construction financing, with the cost of insurance, with materials. Um, and, you know, that was seen a year ago. I mean, we we were reporting on that a year ago. But what's weird is that I'm still seeing launches. I find that to be kind of unusual. Like developers are still launching sales of projects. Um, but I think that there's, you know, there's, there's going to be some distress in terms of like when they actually get off the ground. Um, will they be able to build these projects at the prices that they sold them at? Because in some cases, they sold them before there were all these increases. So it doesn't pencil out the same way. Um, so I think that there will be some of that kind of uncertainty as to which ones will get built. Will they bring on JV partners, you know, to get like an equity infusion, like that kind of thing. But um, there's still, you know, unveiling new developments <laughs> to sell. And is there any hesitation to actually put a shovel in the ground? Yeah, for sure. I think so. Yeah. Because once you like, let's say you get your financing um, or you don't have your financing yet. I mean, I think once you start to draw on a construction loan, like you have to, you know, it's that's when the interest begins. Um, so yeah, I think there is hesitation. There's also the, there's like the fake groundbreakings, the ceremonial ones where everybody shows up for a picture. There's literally a shovel in the ground, but like they haven't really started construction. And sometimes it can be months before the real one happens. And I think there's more of that happening. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach us at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking about the Flatiron Building and what on earth is going on there. Tune in then.